if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at a story that I think is a, a, sort of an interesting story because it, it helps us to see how religious people saw Jesus. Now, you would assume that somebody who's religious uh, would uh, support uh, the work of what Jesus was doing. But in many ways, uh, the religious people were the most, ones who were most threatened. Because in some ways, what happens to all of us is that our religion, our, our sort of our standard of belief, uh, the sort of the barriers or, the, or what I would call the, the boundaries that we establish become our religion. In other, than, uh, in other words, rather than God becoming our, the central part, how we sort of act out in our religious uh, tradition becomes our God. It becomes the idol of our lives. And it's dangerous, isn't it? Where our external demonstration of faith is more important than the internal transformation of the heart. It's so easy for us to misjudge. When we look at somebody, we just assume that as long as they're going to church, that everything is okay. But we know that deep down inside, there's something more than just external behavior. Because what happens is that when we misjudge, we can miss some important things. I remember hearing a story, um, and this happened uh, a few years ago. From the outward, uh, nothing was unusual about Dennis Rader. And actually, he was a normal, everyday person. Uh, he was married, had a house, worked for the city, and uh, he had a modest income. He was also a leader of his church. He was the president of his church council at Christ Lutheran Church. From the outward, he was your everyday neighbor who worked hard, went to church, and lived the American dream. But what people found out later was that he was not what he seemed. From the external, he had all the religious trappings of, of being a religious leader, but on the inside, he was actually corrupt and evil. He was arrested for ten uh, murder of 10 people from 1974 to 1991 in Kansas. He was feared as one of the most uh, uh, serial killers called the BTK murders, which stood for blind, torture, and kill. What was interesting about this man was from the outside, he looked so normal. And yet, from the inside, there was something so abnormal. So the question for us this morning is this. What makes a person do that? Sort of have a, a sort of a, a, what we call a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde syndrome. And this is an age-old question, isn't it? Even though cases like this may be rare, but in all of us, there is something that, that all of us sort of have uh, kind of two lives that we live. We have an external life, and then we have an internal life. You know, one of the things that the Bible reminds us is that the heart itself is sinful. We know that the heart is deceitful. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The very core of our insides, our thought life, our actions, sort of uh, have a life of its own, and then our externals have another life. And the Bible warns us to judge our hearts, to understand our motives, because it is from the heart our actions are played out. Because what is on the inside will eventually come on the outside. Even though we can pretend and act like a religious person deep down inside, if our faith is not genuine, that religiosity eventually fades away. See, I think this whole idea of the deceitfulness of the heart 
goes all the way back, even to the philosophers. Uh, Plato in his Republic tells a story, a fascinating uh, story. It's almost like a parable, uh, which also became the basis of a, of a, a book by J.R. Tolkien called The Lord of the Rings. But this uh, story is called The Ring of Gyges. And it was told the story about a, a shepherd who was laboring uh, in this uh, particular part uh, where just a real nice, humble shepherd. And there was this violent thunderstorm and an earthquake that opened up. And beneath the earth, as he was wandering, he saw uh, an opening and he went inside. And there was a person who, uh, a person who had passed away wearing this gold ring. And what happened was that uh, he took the ring off, put it on, and as some of you have seen The Lord of the Rings, something very similar happened, is that he disappeared. He was able to disappear, and, and, and in some ways, the invisibility gave him power. What began with this uh, shepherd, who was just a very humble, old, nice shepherd, eventually ended up overthrowing the king, seducing the, 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 the queen, and murdering people. He, his heart came out. And in some ways, doesn't that, isn't that what power does? Is that power really reveals to us our, the true state of our being. The reason that so many people don't commit more crimes, I believe, is because the laws and because the external factors don't allow them to. But if you look down deep inside every one of us, we have the capacity and the capability to do so much more. You guys have heard, even in, in Nazi Germany many years ago, where uh, uh, it's just normal, everyday people were, were called to do savage things. Why? Not because they were savages themselves, but because the context created that. Because deep down inside, as Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is deceitful. This kind shepherd became a ruthless murderer. And I think all of us have that same capacity. And the danger is that the most dangerous person is not the one that you obviously see as being a serial killer. The most dangerous person is the one who seems religious, who seems to sort of have it all together. But deep down inside, there's something that is missing. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. If you look at uh, uh, Matthew chapter 15, as uh, we saw in chapter 14 last week, that Jesus did this amazing miracle. He fed the 5,000, then he walked on water. And then in chapter 15, it kind of switches now to a bunch of religious leaders. You would think that these religious leaders, these Pharisees who were sort of governors, uh, religious leaders of his day, would be on board with what Jesus was doing. But what's something interesting about these Pharisees is, is, is like many of us who have grown up in church, is that our traditions, our religion, becomes more dominant than faith itself. In other words, what we think is, is honoring to God becomes the thing that we worship. And so we abstain from certain things. Why? Because our parents told us not to do those things. The Pharisees were similar because they grew up in tradition. They believed that certain behaviors created godliness and holiness. And what they were missing was God himself. So in this particular story, in verse 1, it says, And some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, that they don't wash their hands before they eat? Now, it almost seems like a, a petty thing, right? That these Pharisees were more concerned about the disciples not washing of their hands. But it wasn't just about cleanliness. 
These Pharisees were genuinely concerned about following rules and protocol. And I think the danger of this is that when rules and protocol become the thing that we live by, it leads to what the Bible describes as legalism. And here's the danger of legalism. Is that while legalism, think that by following it, it looks like it produces change, we will not change if we just follow rules and laws. Because it doesn't change the very core of our hearts and our motivation. See, these uh, Pharisees were more concerned about following tradition than they were about following God. In verse 3, Jesus replied, Why do you break the commands of God? For the sake of your tradition, for God says, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother, mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father, whatever, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. What Jesus was describing here was these Pharisees were sort of making up their own laws. And, and when the word of God would trump their principle, then they would basically rationalize that. I think in many ways, the modern-day Pharisees or the modern-day legalists are those like us who have grown up in the church. And here's what I would say. The more churched we are, the more in danger we are of being a legalist. In other words, we, we set up these rules and laws to protect others. But what ends up happening is that the boundary that is to protect others becomes the law in itself. How does one become a legalist? Well, it's, it's sort of like if I were to give you an analogy of, like if you take... Um, a paper, and you copy it, and then you copy the paper that you copied, and then you keep on copying it, you sort of have this diluted version of the original. And in some ways, that's what legalism is. It's the dilution of the original principle that God said. You know, tradition can be so helpful because it helps us know what, what to follow. But tradition itself can be dangerous if tradition becomes the law. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, uh, there was a a story told about a, a, a young lady who, who just got married and she was learning how to cook and she was making pot roast and she was putting it in the oven and she was cutting all the sides and throwing it away. One day, uh, her uh, husband came by and asked her, why are you cutting off the sides? You know, isn't that you know, a, a delicious part of the, of, the, of the meal? And she goes, you know, I, I have no idea. My mom taught me that. So she calls her mom and says, Mom, why do we cut the sides? And the mom says, I have no idea either. Let me, call my, let me call my mother, the grandmother. So they call the grandmother, and the grandmother said, okay, the reason we cut the sides was because the oven was so small. In other words, they were cutting it because out of necessity. But what happened was that cutting became the law and tradition of the family, and they were wasting what was valuable. I think for many Christians, if we sort of live like that, we sort of cut our tradition, and we sort of fit it into sort of what we think makes us holy. Now, again, there are certain things that are important. But legalism can be dangerous because it sets a false standard for spirituality. Elizabeth Elliot, many years ago, uh, talked about what makes a person holy. She kind of uses the illustration. In, 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 in Christianity, many years ago, uh, for example, you cannot wear colored clothes for one thing. You have to get rid of everything in your wardrobe that was not white. 
You had to stop sleeping in soft pillows. You had to sell your musical instruments, and you couldn't eat any white bread. And you couldn't shave your beard or, and, and take warm baths. And according to this law, it says, to shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to prove on his work. Elizabeth Elliot commented on this above dialogue. This, doesn't this sound absurd? If you think about it, but it was the answer that was given to the most celebrated Christian school in the second century. It is possible that rules that have been adopted by many in the 20th century sometimes really give a false sense of spiritual security. That's the danger of legalism, is that rules become the law in which governs our spirituality. I think in many ways, you know, as pastors, for those of us who grew up in ethnic churches, that was kind of the safe way of protecting our, our, our people. And I remember when I was a youth pastor, I, I, I set up really strict guidelines for our youth. You couldn't listen to this type of music. You couldn't put this type of, of, of clothes on because it, it represents the world. And I remember as a young uh, youth pastor, I, I, I established those boundaries. Why? It wasn't to keep our kids, you know, you know, uh, away from having fun. It was so that they could, we could protect their spirituality from the influences of the world. But the danger of that is this, is that their heart is not transformed. Their externals are transformed, but their heart isn't. Why do so many kids who graduate from high school, who go, are part of this sort of uh, youth program, they go to college and they experience sort of the college life and they fall away from their faith? And the danger of that is this. We at the church have focused so much on external behavior as a mark of spirituality that we have lost sight of the transformation of the heart. See, the Pharisees were so concerned about the traditions of the Old Testament that they forgot that they were literally standing next to God himself. And so Jesus rebukes them. And so notice what Jesus says. Then some Pharisees, so Jesus begins to talk about some of the rules. And then he says this in verse uh, 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus is now quoting the Old Testament. And then Jesus in verse 10 calls them together and said, listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth is what makes him unclean. The danger of the Pharisees, I think is the danger of, of many of us, is that the Pharisees then rationalize their behavior. They took God's word and they, instead of, of seeing what scripture said, they kind of rationalize it and they sort of reinterpreted what scripture said. Here's the danger is we will not change. Uh, it, we will not change uh, when we change God's word to adapt to our desires. It only leads to what the Bible describes as rationalization. The Pharisees try to rationalize their behavior. And you know what's the danger of the law? Is that the law becomes so... Um, part of our, our identity, that that's what we think spirituality is, and the law itself is dangerous. I think about when you have laws that are more important to establish than, than the people that the laws were established for. In 1998, there was a man named uh, Christopher Searcy, who was playing basketball with a few of his friends, a young African-American boy, in the half block from Ravens, uh, Ravenswood Hospital. Three uh, Latino gang members came, and, and, and they 
were having sort of this gang warfare, and they shot this boy, Christopher Searcy, in the stomach. In frantic sort of uh, way, they, they took this, their friend uh, 30 feet of the hospital, uh, which was, uh, the hospital was right away, uh, very close by. They took him to the hospital and ran outside for help. They went to the emergency room. The emergency room refused to go outside to assist the dying boy because their policy said they could not help somebody who was not inside the hospital. So the boys called the nearby police to attend to their wounded friend. When the officers arrived, they proceeded to call for an ambulance. He was right in front of the hospital. But they refused to carry the boy inside. When the passerby finally pled with the officers to get the boy into the hospital, this boy was lying in, his, in a pool of blood in his own unconsciousness. And finally, they took him into uh, to the emergency room. And he passed because he was not tended to. And this particular story reminds us that policy and loss itself can be deadly. See, what it was created was a guideline, a principle. But this guideline and principle became the law itself. And that just kind of reminds me of what happens to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were so concerned about being right that they neglected the people of God. And we as Christians need to be careful because if we uh, take the law so stringently, then we tend to rationalize even scripture to ourselves. So the question is, is what then leads to transformation? And here's the last point of the sermon is this. We will only change when our hearts are clean. We will only change when we have been transformed from the inside out. The only way we can truly be transformed is internally. Notice what Jesus says. This is important. When Jesus begins this, uh, this next uh, verse in verse 10, Jesus called the crowd and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. See, the, the, the Pharisees were concerned about the physical element of what went into their mouth. What Jesus said, look, it doesn't matter whether your hands are clean or not. What is unclean is your hearts. Verse 12, then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know what the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the Pharisees were offended at what Jesus was saying? Because what Jesus was saying was truth. And the Pharisees were more concerned about protecting their reputation than the gospel, than, than the good news of God. Verse 13, he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will not be pulled by its roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind guide leads the blind man, both will fall into the pit. So what Jesus is saying, look, these Pharisees don't know what they're talking about. And, the, and then Peter said, explain this to us. And Jesus, at this point, is now saying, okay, look, you guys don't understand. Are you so dull, Jesus asks? Don't you see that whatever enters a man's a mouth goes into his stomach and then out of his body? But the thing that comes out of the man from the heart that's what makes them unclean. In other words, what Jesus was describing was the very nature of our hearts. Unless our hearts are transformed, what's going to come out eventually are things like evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are the things that make a man unclean. Here's the danger, even with the things that are happening in our culture. Sometimes we could think, okay, well, let's establish a law and racism won't happen. 
Well, the reality is this, that no matter how many laws we establish, the laws that are designed to protect people can also become the thing that kills people. What has to happen in our culture are, is that people's hearts have to be transformed. That we have to be people who are loving, who are kind. If, if we're going to deal with racism, we have to understand the very nature that where racism comes from. It comes from a heart that is deceitful, that is evil, that is sinful. What Jesus is reminding us is this. As Christians, we are then to be people who have been transformed from the inside out. Over and over again, the Bible reminds us the heart of man is wicked and deceitful. Goes back to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Paul, in his uh, uh, letter uh, to the Romans, says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have come together because become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. What Paul is describing is really the state of humanity. And this is where Christians really begin is that every single one of us are deceitful. Every single one of us are sinful. Every sin single one of us are separated from God. And that's the very nature of sin. And unless we recognize the sinfulness and the deceitfulness and the uncleanliness of our own hearts, we will not be transformed. No matter how many laws we enact, no matter how many traditions that we establish, at the very core of our being is a heart that needs to be transformed. You know, I, I think about uh, David as he's been rebuked by um, Nathan in Psalm 51. And after his rebuke, he realizes this, that what led him to sin was his deceitful heart. And then he says that in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit with me, within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And I think for us that that's where we as Christians have to begin. Every one of you, no matter how good you are, are still sinful people. We all have the potential to be worse than we are. Some of us may be surprised by that, but really it, it shouldn't surprise us. And I think for all of us that I think true revival begins when we recognize the deceitfulness of our own hearts and our willingness to repent and come before God. You know the reason why we take communion every month in our church, some churches do it every week, is we take communion because we recognize the very simple fact that it is our sinfulness, our deceitfulness before God, and that Jesus died for that so that our hearts can be renewed. And that it is not us externally that can renew our hearts. It's only God himself through the Holy Spirit that can renew us, that can cleanse us. There are two things that I want to encourage you to think about. Number one, we need to change our thinking. We need to change our thinking about who we are and who God is. We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly, but we should think of ourselves in reality to who God thinks of us. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I think the most important thing is that unless our minds and our hearts are transformed, 
then we will easily just conform to the patterns of this world. But the second thing that the Bible reminds us is we need to change our desire. And here's the key, I think, to spiritual transformation. Here's a question, as Jonathan Edwards asked. What is your deepest affection? Is it God or is it everything else? And I think that's the place that our hearts are transformed. Once God becomes the deepest of, of our affection, then that's the first thing, the first step in internal transformation. But for many of us, God isn't the first part of our transformation. So we think by doing religious activities that somehow that's going to change our hearts. Well, our hearts are ultimately transformed by the Holy Spirit. And it's not that we don't go, still need to come to church or still go to Bible study. All those things facilitate the inward heart. But we have to understand that if the heart is not changed, changed behavior will ultimately not happen. So as we conclude our service this morning, I want you to sort of, in this period of, of COVID-19, maybe this is God's judgment in one sense, but maybe it's also a blessing. And it's both, isn't it? And many of us are frustrated with what's happening, but maybe that frustration is allowing us to see what is truly important in our relationship with God. Once we are transformed, then that's when action happens. But if actions happen without the heart transformation, those actions often lead to legalism and hypocrisy. But if we truly act because of a transformed heart, then everything we do ultimately results in the glory of God. I want to conclude with one last story. It's one of my, one of my favorite stories in history. Uh, a young man who was, um, um, his, his dream was to go into the open seas. He took uh, voyages across the sea, working with a Navy captain. And he became ultimately rose ranks to become the captain of the ship. But what he was transporting was not a good thing. He was actually transforming people in slavery. Eventually, he became a, a slave trader and was able to trade people. Well, one day, as he was doing that, the ship was, it was in a major storm. And he had been growing up in the Christian faith, but externally he may have had the religious upbringing, but internally his heart was evil and corrupt. Well, this man, the Lord opened up the Bible to him. And in one of those voyages, God began to speak to his heart that what he was doing was wrong. Externally he, was, he, was, he said he thought he was a good person, but internally his heart was corrupt. Well, this man, many of you know, was a man named John Newton. John Newton, by the way, his song, Amazing Grace, came out of the recognition of his corrupt heart. Now, what made John Newton's transformation even that much more remarkable was not that he stopped slave trading. He, he eventually, he, he played a major role in that. Eventually, he became uh, an ordained Anglican minister, and he started ministering to the people of Parliament. There was a young man who was a young parliamentary leader. His name was William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a, a brilliant lawyer whose heart had been transformed by the gospel. And he was discipled by this man named John Newton. 
John Newton, the former slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace, discipled this man, and William Wilberforce was the man who was able to establish, way before America did, the illegal slave trade and abolish slavery altogether. That all began to happen because John Newton's heart was transformed by the gospel. And I think that's my call to all of you, that if our heart is not changed, it doesn't matter what we do on the outside. But if our heart is changed, then what we do on the outside matters. So let's keep that in perspective. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me.